The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study, let's take a few moments to ask the Lord's guidance as we study His Word. Father, we do thank You for this privilege and opportunity to study Your Word, that Your Word is a light into our path and a lamp into our feet. Your Word is absolute truth, and it is by Your Word that You are in the process of sanctifying us under the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit. Father, we pray now as we study Your Word that we might be challenged by the things that we study, the things we examine, that Your Word would produce its intended results in our lives and that we would be responsive to its challenge. We pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, it has been about three weeks since we were last here, so I'm sure you have been thinking profoundly about 1 John ever since, so we'll just move right ahead, right? Oh, I guess not, so maybe we ought to review a little bit. Open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. Let's start at verse 12. 1 John chapter 2, verse 12. John says, I write to you, little children, for your sins are forgiven you because of his name's sake. Now, that's a corrected translation based on the Greek, and we spent some time looking at the reason for that in the past. Two things I want to emphasize, though. He says here, I write to you, little children. Little children here is the neuter plural vocative of technion in the Greek. And technion refers to a a child of indeterminate age, and it is a diminutive form here, so it's used as a term of endearment for the congregation that he is addressing. It is not used, technion is not used here as a technical term of, of a stage in spiritual growth or spiritual advance. Now, it's hard to pick that out in the English because in the English you have the phrase children or little children in several places in this chapter. For example, in verse 13, at the, in the third stanza of verse 13, we read in the English, I write to you, little children, because you have known the Father. But there, there's a different Greek word. It's paideia, and that refers to a spiritual, uh, refers to an infant, and in that case, a spiritual infant. So you have to understand that there are distinctions in the Greek. Verse 18 has in English, little children, but it's paideia again. And we don't find technion again until we come down to verse 28. 
that tells us something when you're studying through, through a text like this and you find certain marks within the text in terms of vocabulary shift that this indicates the structure of the author's thought. That's important. Structure is not the main thing. Our main point is not doing literary analysis. But it helps us to understand the parameters of what the author is saying and where he's marking out his major, the major points in his discourse. Several times throughout John, he refers to the congregation by the term technion. But all of a sudden, in verse 13, there's a shift to paideia, uh, both in 13 and again in verse 18. And that tells us that he's no longer addressing the congregation as a whole through a term of endearment, suggesting their and emphasizing their relationship. He is the pastor, and they as his spiritual children. But he is going to address something about spiritual growth. Now, when we plug this whole thing into what John is talking about in 1 John, we have to understand, first of all, he's talking about, he's talking about fellowship. He's talking about the believer's fellowship, his rapport, his intimate communion with God based on his spiritual growth and the relationship to God the Holy Spirit. Back in chapter 1, he mentions fellowship twice in verse 5 and verse 6. He states, this is the message emphasizing doctrinal content once again. It is not emotion, it's the message. It's not style, it's the message. It's the content, the meaning of the word. This is the message which we have heard from him. Declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And if we claim to have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, that is, if we claim to have fellowship with him and and live a life characterized by carnality or sin. We lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Notice, walking in the light precedes fellowship with one another. People fellowship does not precede God fellowship. That's one of the big problems today in churches is people think that somehow uh, it's the body of Christ that is a key element in sanctification. I remember hearing one man years ago talk about the fact that there were three things necessary for our spiritual growth. The Word of God, the Spirit of God, and the people of God. Makes for great alliteration. Lousy theology. People are. It's nice to have fellowship. I'm not denigrating the importance of fellowship with other believers. It's emphasized right here in the text. But what precedes fellowship with others is fellowship with God. You can have fellowship with all the believers in the world and have great times and enjoyable social events and personal friendships, but if we do not have fellowship with God, the rest doesn't matter. The precedent for everything, the foundation for all relationships, is our fellowship with God. So John says that we must first walk in the light, and a consequence of that is that we have then fellowship with one another, because ultimately fellowship is not reports, not... Friendship, it's not personal affinity, it's not the fact that we like, enjoy, or uh, gain great pleasure from one another's company because that is not relevant. What's relevant is doctrine because the fellowship that he talks about in the first chapter is a fellowship based on a correct understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, that's kind of an interesting concept because most people will think of something that we usually refer to as a personality clash. And it's true that there are times when we all meet people and are around people, and somehow uh, their personalities and our personalities may not mesh. That's why we have the, the importance of doctrine such as impersonal, unconditional love, that we are to love one another, not because we have a personal affinity or because we get along with one another, 
because sometimes we just find certain personality types or certain people to be irritants. But what I've always discovered is that if another person may have idiosyncrasies and may have certain personal traits that may not be something that I enjoy the most or may bother me a little bit, but if that person loves the Lord and is devoted to doctrine, somehow those other things become irrelevant. But if doctrine isn't first, then those other things tend to get in the way. Now, that has tremendous application in marriage because as soon as people get out of fellowship when they're married to one another, all of a sudden it's funny how the little idiosyncrasies that don't bother you when you're deeply enraptured with one another uh, prior to marriage suddenly become the, the uh, straw that breaks the camel's back, so to speak. They become all of a sudden not sweet little interesting traits, but they become gnawing, nagging, painful uh, habits that the other person needs to get rid of. Fellowship with God is the key. When we are in fellowship with Him and advancing in doctrine, then we can just about get along with anybody else who is doing the same because our priorities are correctly adjusted. That's the thrust of this epistle, is what it means to have fellowship with God and how it works itself out in our own personal lives. The first uh, 11 verses of uh, John, or 1 John chapter 2, or really from 1 John 1, 1, it's, it's interesting construction. The more I get into looking at this epistle, the more I think that John, this was a message John taught. He probably taught it again and again, and he wrote it down. It, it bears the marks of rhetoric and oratory more than Paul's do. Paul's reflect carefully thought out, crafted writing. But James and First John also bear the marks of the fact that this could have been an, a, a crafted message. This was what he had taught in Bible class. And I'll, I'll give you one illustration of that when we get into verses 13 and 14 this morning. But John has given us a long introduction. It goes from the first verse down to the end of this section. We're in now down to 226. He has a preface. He has a, introduction, a preface in 1, 1 through 4, an introduction from 1, 5 down to uh, 2, 11, and then in 2, 12 down to 2, 26, with the section we are now in, we find the purpose, why he is writing this. He address, is addressing three different groups of people. You find the three different groups of people in any congregation. The children, the immature believers, new believers, baby believers, and young believers. You find your adolescent believers, the, the the ones who have mastered a certain level of doctrine and they're getting ready to move through some important testing so that they will advance in maturity into spiritual adulthood. And then you find your spiritual adults. And this passage classifies them under the three categories of fathers, young men, and children. And in a real sense, every congregation, every church is a, like a, the old one-room schoolhouses. Some of you are, are just barely, um, barely out of spiritual diapers. Others of you have been around applying doctrine for many years, and, and you're pushing the higher limits of spiritual maturity. And yet we gather together in one body every Sunday and Wednesday, and I provide a spiritual meal that is supposed to have a little baby food in it and, and something tough and chewy for the adults to gnaw on and take home and gain some sustenance for. 
And that's a principle we need to always remember because some of you are sitting here sometimes going, I didn't have a clue what he was talking about. You pick out a thing here and a thing there, and um, you can go home, and, and that's good for you. Others of you, uh, sometimes you sit there and say, well, most of that was review. But now and then I try to throw a good T-bone, chunk of T-bone in there so that you can uh, have something for you to go on. So it's, it's a one-room schoolhouse, and that's the nature of, of a church. And one of the sad things is, I think, in the practice of teaching pastoral ministry today is that everything, like so much in our society, is being dumbed down to the lowest common denominator. And the result is that uh, spiritual infants never quite get out of diapers, and pastors rarely have a vision for getting people into kindergarten, much less into graduate school. And the thing is, you go around to many churches... I taught at a church this last last week, and one of the one of my friends who came and visited made the comment afterwards said, "You know, it just seemed like they were apologizing for the depth of teaching afterward, and it really wasn't that way. But but it's true. So many churches today have such they they've lowered the standard of teaching to such a level that uh, uh, sort of what I would call first grade primer level spiritual instruction is." Uh, thought to be very advanced, meaty truth. We have lost the concept of deep exegesis, exposition of Scripture. So there needs to be uh, uh, something for everybody, for each of the spiritual groups, and John addresses them. Verse 12, as we stated, provides the motivation for all levels, and that is grace. I write to you, little children, that's everybody, because, or for, it's an explanatory there, for your sins are forgiven you because of, and there we have a causal hadi, because of his character. And we understand that everything that we have in life is due to his grace. Grace is one of those terms that is bandied about by uh, every purveyor of religion and spirituality, but it is rarely understood by, by anyone. Grace means undeserved favor or unmerited Blessing. It means we do nothing. That's what undeserved or unmerited means. It, it, it conveys the idea that I did nothing and, and everything that I have is just a free gift. A free gift means that it's mine, it's my possession, that no matter what I do, even if I try to give it away, it's still mine. It was given to me and it's now mine and my possession, whether I like it or not. And it is not due to anything that I've done, but it is totally... It is there totally because of the character of the one who gives the gift. It is a free gift. I think one of the best illustrations of grace that I ever heard, unfortunately I, I missed this, I, I knew of a couple of uh, professors who did this, but Lewis Berry Chafer, who founded Dallas Seminary, used to teach a class on evangelism. And at the end of the semester, when the students were given their final they would all go home and, of course, everyone's cramming. And you know how it is when you're in school. You have various different finals. And so sometimes you're not doing well in one, so you study very hard there. And other times you're doing better in another one. You don't study as hard. But everybody would study different levels and come in. They would take this final. And he would make it an excruciatingly difficult examination. And as each student finished the exam and took the blue book up and placed it on his desk, he would just open it up and write A plus. Close it set it in the pile. Well, some of the guys who came in there who hadn't studied very hard just were, boy, this is great. 
But what about those who had studied for hours? They didn't like that. There was a lot of resentment over that because we like to think that somehow we deserve what we get. But that was a tremendous illustration of God's grace is it's not based on who we are or what we've done. And there's so many people out there who've spent so much of their life under some kind of legalistic system where they had to go to church and they had to be moral. They had to do this and thinking all of this somehow uh, impresses God. Nothing impresses God. Isaiah 64, 6 says, All of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Not our unrighteousnesses, but all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags in the sight of God. He is not at all impressed by even our best. And that is what grace is all about. And once we understand grace, that our sins are forgiven us because of His namesake, not ours, His character. It's a Greek and Hebrew idiom for character. They're forgiven because of who He is, not because of who we are. That is to motivate us through the spiritual life, that we have been bought with a price so that we are owned by God. We are no longer slaves of sin. Paul says in Romans 6, we are slaves of righteousness. Therefore, we are to reckon ourselves, that is to consider or think ourselves dead. That's the process. Now, it's very interesting. got in some fascinating discussions over this this last week when I was in... uh, in Dallas, we look at our standard diagram. Here's the cross. At the cross, we enter into two spheres of relationship with Christ. We'll go back to a top and bottom circle here since we're working on the overhead. We enter into one relationship with Christ, which has to do with eternal realities. We are in Christ. Second Corinthians 5 says that, Therefore, if any man be in Christ... He is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are new. Not might be new, not ought to be new if they keep, keep with it, but they are new. I keep saying if people really understand what the Scripture teaches about regeneration, you could never think that you could lose your salvation. This is an irreversible process at regeneration where we are made a new creature. But we still have a problem in terms of time, in terms of our temporal experience, and that is that we sin. We are entered into union with Christ, and we are entered into a relationship with the Holy Spirit called the filling of the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 5.18 and walking by the Holy Spirit in Galatians 5.16. But when we sin, we're out of fellowship. We are dominated at that point by the sin nature and controlled by the sin nature, and everything we do, good, bad, or indifferent, is a product of the sin nature. Recovery is through 1 John 1.9. But 1 John 1.9 simply puts us back in a position where we are filled by means of the Holy Spirit. We can walk by means of the Holy Spirit. It's a static position. But the reason I always emphasize walking, as in the phrase walking in the Holy Spirit, walking by the light, is that there's a dynamic there. Same thing with abiding, which is a key word that John uses as a synonym for fellowship. We're to abide, remain, stick with it. We are to stay in fellowship. The issue isn't just 1 John 1, 9 and get back in fellowship. The issue is to remain or to stay in fellowship. And the way we stay in fellowship is by operating under the principle of Romans chapter 6, which is to reckon or consider ourselves dead to sin. And that's based on an understanding of positional truth. And this is the top circle. We have to understand positional truth, our position in Christ, in order for it to impact our day-to-day experience. 
Romans 6, 3 through 5 states that at the point that we put our faith alone in Christ alone, we were identified with Jesus Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. So that just as He died on the cross, we die to sin. Therefore, sin is no longer master over us. That's John, uh, Paul's argument in Romans chapter 6. And the way you stay in fellowship, putting these things together, comparing Scripture with Scripture, we recover fellowship through 1 John 1, nine, and then we're able to continue in fellowship, that is, walking by means of the Spirit, by recognizing everything that Christ has done for us on the cross, and realizing, reckoning, thinking, considering ourselves dead to sin, that sin should no longer be master over us. So first, verse 12 emphasizes the grace motivation. Then in verse 13, John says, I write to you fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. And there we saw that that's reference to the Lord Jesus Christ and to the spiritual skill of occupation with Christ. And there we have the uh, diagram. It's on the overhead broken down into the three levels of spiritual growth. These are spiritual skills. A skill is something you develop, you practice, you do over and over again. At first it may seem mechanic, mechanical, it may seem difficult, but as you develop it, as you practice it, a fluidity develops and skill develops until it becomes second nature. You have three stages, spiritual childhood, spiritual adolescence, and spiritual adulthood. Now the way we're going to go through this is in a reverse order from top to bottom. John says, I write to you fathers because you have known him who is from the beginning. And we studied that and showed that that was an emphasis on the eternality of Jesus Christ. He will talk about the Father in the last clause. But he talks about Christ here in the first clause. This is occupation with Christ. And this we see in this block right here. So what happens in spiritual adulthood, we have four spiritual skills that we master. Personal love for God, the Father, impersonal love for all mankind, and occupation with Christ are three dimensions, and I call it the love triplex. And all has to do with learning to love God. And the result of that then is uh, perfect happiness, sharing the happiness of Christ. The second stage then is covered in the next clause in verse 13. I write to you, young men... Because you have overcome the wicked one. Because you have overcome the wicked one. And the verb there is the perfect active indicative, second person plural, of nikao. The noun is nike, means victory. We pronounce it nike when we look at our shoes. That's where that word comes from. It means victory. It means uh, to win. It means to overcome, to conquer. It has many different nuances, but it means that they have, that the young men, that is the spiritual adolescents, have reached a certain stage of advance in terms of spiritual warfare and in terms of, of spiritual growth. So it specifically relates this stage to the, of growth to the angelic conflict. Now I want you to notice that verse 13 is, it's like a summary. It's like a preacher getting up and saying, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you, then I'm going to tell you, then I'm going to tell you what I told you. It's giving this summary. He says, he addresses the fathers, young men, and children. And then if you look at verse 14. Verse 14, he comes back, he says, I've written to you fathers. He says the same thing, nothing more to the fathers. Talking to the spiritual adult. 
They don't have a problem. The problem that John's addressing in the congregation at Ephesus does not affect the adult mature believers. They understand the doctrine. They're applying the doctrine. They don't have a problem. The problem is with the spiritual adolescents and the spiritual infants. Spiritual adolescents have a tendency to hit that level of growth and fade out. They get distracted. There's a number of things that that can happen, a number of different causes. But I find that a lot of people, when they're first saved, they're hungry. They want the answers to a lot of questions in life. And and, And they're motivated by learning. And they want to learn. They want to get answers to their questions. And then after a certain point... Their curiosity is satiated. They've gotten answers to their, to, to their uh, questions. And now that motivation has to shift. When we're brand new baby believers, we come to church for all kinds of reasons. Some of you may have come into this building for all kinds of reasons. Maybe a friend invited you. Maybe uh, someone you were attracted to was coming to church here. And so uh, you had to come because uh, that was part of the relationship. And all of a sudden you discovered that somebody was saying some things about the Bible that you didn't understand, but obviously they seemed to know something about the Bible. And so then you began to listen and, and your spiritual interest was, was uh, captured and, and you were maybe saved. There have been those who have been saved here and or you just be, were challenged to grow, to grow spiritually. And so you begin to advance as a, as a young believer. Now... As we advance and grow, we go through these various stages of motivation. You're motivated by one thing or another when you first come. People go to churches for all kinds of reasons. Most of them are crazy reasons. You know, they're looking for all the extraneous stuff. Maybe they want to sing in a choir. Maybe they want good music. Well, those folks usually don't show up here, but that's, a, that's another story. Maybe one day we'll, we won't be quite so musically challenged. But... Uh, uh, people go for the choir, they go for music, sometimes they go for kids' programs or camping programs or all kinds of different things they're looking for. Maybe they're looking for a social life, a singles group, uh, all kinds of things. And all of a sudden they realize that, that maybe church has some other significance other than uh, my own personal interests. And as they grow, that, that motivation needs to shift. You learn about grace and the motivation rather than being people or Programs or something like that, motivation shifts to uh, what I stated in verse 12, and that is grace. You understand all that God has. So now, rather than being motivated by something external, you're motivated by what's on the inside, and you begin to advance. And the same thing you notice just naturally when you look at kids, they're motivated by all kinds of things when they're five, six, seven years of age, and mostly by whatever is going to give them immediate gratification. But then as they grow older and move through those adolescent years into adulthood, part of maturity is being able to postpone gratification and to think in the long range instead of, instead of the short range. And so what happens here is as Christians hit spiritual adolescence, they have to see their motivation shift. Their motivation now is at their level of the personal sense of their eternal destiny Their motivation is now on eternity, that the decisions I make today are going to determine my place and role in the millennial kingdom and for eternity in heaven. That what I will be in eternity is determined by the decisions I make today. And so all of a sudden our 
our motivation is to shift, but there's a lot of Christians, I would say a vast majority, reach that point and they never make it through that adolescent stage. They, they cave in. They're neighbor, never able to shift from the here and now to the future and have a long-range view of the spiritual life. But Paul writes to these adolescents, he says, you have achieved that. You've overcome the wicked one. That is, all the distractions that uh, are thrown to us either uh, in the angelic conflict to distract us, to get our priorities off of doctrine, to get our priorities on job, family, friends, social life, all the details of life, rather than on making the Word of God uh, primary. I want you to notice... He says, I write to you, young, man, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. That's just a summary statement. Look down in the next verse. The second clause of the verse 14. There he says, I have written to you, young men. Same phrase that we have back in 13. Because you are, and he adds two more elements. Because you are strong, the word of God abides in you. And now the element he already mentioned, you have overcome the wicked one. So he's using that phrase, overcoming the wicked one, in verse 13, as, as the key element to describe everything that he says in verse, the second half of verse 14 and verse 15. When does he stop talking to the adolescent believer? He doesn't stop talking to the adolescent believer until he mentions the next category, which is children. Fathers of the first clause in 14a. 14b, I've written to you young men, and 14c defines why he is writing to young men. And he gives something positive in 14c, and then in 15a there is a warning, a negative. Do not love the world or the things in the world. So when we get to chapter, or verse 15 rather, we will need to focus on the whole doctrine of the cosmic system. But for now we need to focus on the aspect of spiritual adolescence, because you have overcome the wicked one. Now, we must ask, if this is victory over the evil one, and the evil one is one of the titles for Satan from the noun paneros, meaning evil, uh, it's used by Jesus to refer to the evil one in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, when Jesus prayed that we were, were to, to the Father to keep us from the evil one. So we must ask, in what sense are we, do we have victory over the evil one? Is this in an absolute sense? By absolute sense, I mean, does this indicate that we're never going to have a problem with Satan or demons or the angelic conflict again? No, that's not true. We're still living in the devil's world. He's still the prince and power of the air. And we have, we're still going to have problems in the angelic conflict. Is this, and the second question we might ask, is this in a personal combative sense? You know, there's some groups who when they talk about spiritual warfare, and I've seen preachers throw themselves on the ground and do all kinds of gyrations up on the stage indicating that they're doing personal combat with the devil. And that may be uh, uh, considered uh, great fun and entertainment by some, but it has nothing to do with uh, biblical teaching on spiritual warfare. In fact, never... Never, not one time in the Scripture is a believer ever authorized to think or act as if he is engaged in personal combat with the devil. Not once. So all this teaching, rebuking the devil has, that people are told to do, 
casting out demons. You don't find any of that in the Scriptures. That's very important. The epistles are written to believers in the church age to teach us how to live in the church age. That's premise number one. Premise number two, the Scripture says, 2 Peter 1.3, that God has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. The word for godliness is the word eusebeia, meaning spiritual life. God has given us everything. Well, if the Scriptures, the epistles are written to church-age believers, and they tell us everything there is to know that's important, for us to know about the spiritual life. And there is no mention whatsoever of demon possession for Christians, no mention whatsoever of how to cast demons out of unbelievers, then this is not an issue, it's not a problem, and it's not a procedure for the church age. Anybody who does that by virtue of the fact that they are engaged in that is denying and rejecting the sufficiency of Scripture, and they are in heresy and in apostasy. And they're just involved in showmanship and entertainment, and they don't have anything to do with the Word of God. The Word of God says that even if you do run into somebody that's demon-possessed, that, what that means is the demon is controlling their body, but their soul hasn't been obliterated. That personal identity is still in that individual with a volition. You give them the gospel, if they respond positively, that demon's going to be ejected immediately. It's not exorcism. It's not, that's, in fact, the Greek word exorkizo, which is, which is where we get our English word exorcism, was only used of the, uh, uh, of the magicians, the Jewish magicians, who used their incantations and charms to try to alleviate the problems of the demon-possessed. The Greek never uses the word exorkizo, in relation to what Jesus and the apostles legitimately did during the dispensation of the, uh, of the Messiah during the first advent, they never uh, use that word. It's always ekbalo, which means to cast out, and it was a radically different procedure than exorcism. So this isn't an absolute sense. It's not a sense of personal combat. And uh, then a third question we could ask is, does this mean that the adolescent believer is no longer target in the angelic conflict? And I think we would all agree that's not true, so let's just move on. So to understand this dimension, just exactly what John is talking about, we have to skip down. And, and what I want to do is look at the whole subject of what John addresses to the adolescent in context. So for now, we won't look at the end of 13 addressed to little children. We'll pick that up when we get down to verse 18 and the expanded instruction to the infants, to the spiritual infants. So in the second part of verse 14, John says, I've written to you, young men. These are the neoniskoi. That is the uh, vocative plural once again of neoniskos, meaning an adolescent, teenager, teenage believer as it were. And there we have in the way we bracketed this out, one spiritual skill a personal sense of eternal destiny. The reason we say that is that just, just watch, think about your own life. If you don't have kids, if you do have kids, think about watching them as they went through adolescence. When they were young, they didn't think much beyond today or tomorrow. But as they matured through adolescence, they began to think and plan more in terms of long range. They began to think in terms of how decisions today might impact their future. 
the more mature they were, the more that was a factor. Well, this is true for the believer. We have, as, as Moses stated, three score and ten years on the earth, roughly. We may have a little more. We may live to be 80 or 90. We may not live quite to 70. But that's the amount of time we have on this earth to grow and advance to spiritual maturity. The capacity we have in our soul for grace, the capacity we have for a relationship with God, and our comprehension of doctrine at the point of physical death is what we take with us into heaven. Is that a new thought for some of you? See, some folks think that, well, it really doesn't matter now when I die and I'm in heaven, all of a sudden I'm going to know it all. No, you're not. We're never going to know it all. As a matter of fact, God is omniscient. We're always going to be finite creatures. We will never be omniscient. We're going to be learning throughout all of eternity, always advancing in knowledge of God and knowledge of, of, uh, of doctrine. So what we are becoming, we are today becoming what we will be in eternity. And when we die at physical, at the, excuse me, when we die, then at the rapture, we will go to be with the Lord in heaven and we will go to the judgment seat of Christ. At the judgment seat of Christ, we will receive rewards. That's called our inheritance. The inheritance relates to our position in heaven. Romans chapter, I mean, excuse me, Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 3, talks about the saints coming back with the Lord to judge tribulation saints. Well, those saints there, those who are on those thrones given to judgment in Revelation 20, 1 through 4, are church age believers. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul uh, warns the Corinthians, Why are you taking one another to court? Do you not know that you eventually are going to be judging angels? This is the thing that we're preparing for. Right now we're in boot camp. We're going to college, as it were. We are getting trained so that when we are in our resurrection body, we can carry out our responsibilities that God gives us to rule and reign with Him. How well we do now determines what we will be doing then and the degree to which we will be glorifying the Lord and the capacity we will have for heaven when we get there. So we are becoming today what we will be in eternity. And the more we grasp that, the more the details of life begin to diminish in significance. The more we begin to realize that our priority needs to be the Word of God and doctrine, And it doesn't really matter about hobbies. It doesn't matter about uh, other affairs in life, other events in life, entertainment, whatever it might be. Not that those things are wrong, but that anything that becomes a distraction to doctrine, sooner or later as we advance, we realize how irrelevant it is. We may enjoy it. We may take great pleasure from it. It may be uh, a fine and wonderful activity. But if it diminishes our uh, role and relationship uh, uh, diminishes our relationship with the Lord and has an impact on our future role, then we need to get it out of our lives. So, spiritual adolescence is that midpoint that we go through in terms of spiritual advance, and that is considered a victory over Satan because it is in that time of spiritual childhood that, that um, the angelic conflict, the cosmic system, is throwing everything it can at us to distract us and keep us from ever growing and advancing. Remember, the ultimate goal in the spiritual life is, is, as Jesus states in John 15, is to produce much fruit. And that is the maximum glorification of God right up here at the top. That's the goal. And that is when we demonstrate in the angelic conflict fully before Satan, before the angels fallen and elect, 
the grace of God and the magnificence of His provision and the sufficiency of His grace and His Word and the importance of doctrine. So our goal is to start down here, down in the uh, lower left, as it were, and we're advancing all the way to the top right, maximum glorification of God. But Satan wants to stop that as much as he can and prevent us from ever glorifying God. That's his one of his tactics in the church age. So when we move past spiritual infancy, we have gained a um, we have gained a level of victory over the cosmic system. We know he's talking about that because verses 15 through 17 focuses on the cosmic system. That's the element of victory that he's emphasizing. So we read in the middle of verse 14, I've written to you young men because you are strong. That's the first thing. They are strong. And the Greek word here is is iskois. Iskaros. Iskaros. And that means to be strong. Now, several things that I think of when we talk about strength. First of all, what does it mean? It means first to advance to a certain level of spiritual maturity a level that is able to handle the tests of life. James says, Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. That's the process of growing strong. Furthermore, strong is the opposite of being weak. Weak is the Greek word asthenes. Now, what, there are two, or basically... Three causes, three things to say about weakness. Two causes. First cause of spiritual weakness is immaturity. Some believers are spiritually weak because they've never learned any doctrine. It doesn't have anything to do with carnality. It has to do with absence of doctrine. They just don't know any better. This is the idea and the doctrine of the weaker brother mentioned in Romans 14, 1 through 12 and 1 Corinthians 8, 7. 1 Corinthians 8, 7 states... However, not all men have this knowledge. See, the issue is doctrine there. But some being accustomed to the idol until now, that is, some believers, this is talking about the weaker brother, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Now, the reason the conscience is weak is because there's no, no knowledge, no doctrine. So the first reason that a believer can be weak is due to immaturity, lack of knowledge. Second is due to carnality and reversionism. This is stated, for example, in 1 Corinthians 11.30 in the context of the communion supper. There, Paul says, for this reason, because they were treating the communion supper lightly, they were coming and using it as an orgy and getting drunk and they were in carnality. Paul says, for this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. And the term weak there doesn't refer to physical weakness, but to spiritual weakness. So third, we can say that weakness means the believer is unable to persevere or endure in times of trouble or adversity. The solution to weakness is, first of all, confession if the problem is extended carnality. To use 1 John 1, 9 to get back in fellowship and then start learning and applying doctrine. If the problem is immaturity, then, of course, the solution is just the second part, which is to continue to learn and apply doctrine And that produces a strengthening in the soul, which is called edification. Edification produces something. We use the illustration of a soul fortress. 
This is something that is built up brick by brick. There is a strengthening in our soul. And as we look at the picture of the soul fortress, we see there are different elements involved. These are the same spiritual skills that we had on the, on the overhead just, just a moment ago. And they come together, one brick here, one brick there, as we learn a doctrine and it becomes assimilated into the soul. The foundation, the entry point into the soul fortress here is 1 John 1, nine. The foundation to the soul fortress is the filling of the Holy Spirit. And then everything else is constructed on top of that. And when we are inside the soul fortress, God is our protector and we are able to withstand the onslaughts of adversity and testing. Strength, which is iskuo, is related to its synonym dunamis, which means power. And this brings on the whole concept of the spiritual life, which uh, or spiritual warfare, which we will get into next time. And this is instantiated in Ephesians 6.10. We'll have to get into the armor passage next time. But Ephesians 6.10 says, Be strong in the Lord. And the word there for strong is dunamis. Be powerful in the Lord and in the strength of His power. Iskuos. So there we have these two words united together. And then we're told to stand firm. And that is the Greek word histemi which is to take up a defensive posture behind doctrine. We're to move into that soul fortress and stay there, not go out and try to engage the enemy offensively. And so once you learn that, then you gain a measure of victory over the enemy. And that is what John is talking about in terms of spiritual adolescence. So we'll come back next time and we'll look at this in terms of the angelic conflict and spiritual warfare. We'll deal a little bit with the doctrine of Satan and demons, and then we will go on to Satan's greatest tool for destroying the believer, and that is the cosmic system, and how we can learn to identify the thinking in the cosmic system and the thinking of the cosmic system that is influencing our own thought. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we do thank you for this time and opportunity to to study your word, to focus on these eternal truths that uh, radically change our thinking and our lives. But, Father, the starting point is salvation. Before we can truly understand all that you have for us, we must first have a new nature. We must be regenerated, Scripture says. Regeneration comes as a result of accepting the free gift, the free gift of salvation in Jesus Christ. Scripture says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It does not say believe and be baptized. It does not say believe and reform your life. It doesn't say believe and join a church or join a denomination or engage in ritual. Scripture says believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning unsure of their salvation and uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity right now to make that sure and certain. All you need to do right where you sit is to trust Christ alone for your salvation, not anything else. You don't even need to tell God what you trust because God is omniscient and He knows exactly what you're relying upon for your eternal salvation. Father, we pray that those who are believers here would be challenged by the things that we have studied this morning to push on to the high ground of spiritual maturity, that we might advance through spiritual adulthood so that you can be glorified to the maximum by our own spiritual lives. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.